Now, my subject is prevaricating physicians in matters medical legal, a scourge on a profession. And you know very well what goes into a lawsuit. There's the poor defendant with a plaintiff who may be justified, the judge, and an attorney. Now, everyone knows the limitations of the legal system, and those limitations are largely a consequence of the limitations of mortals, of human beings. It's our responsibility as citizens to try and minimize those limitations. What can be done about outrageously dishonest testimony by medical expert witnesses? I want to say at the outset, I am not speaking about differences of opinion. We applaud them, we encourage them, we respect them. And it's essential in a free society, that's obvious. We're not talking about lying and lying in a way that is outrageous. This seems touristic, but it seems not to be in our society. When one swears to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, one should tell the truth unflinchingly. Do physicians who serve as expert witnesses testify consistently in a fashion truthful, unvarnished? We're now going to examine briefly four cases medical legal adjudicated in just the years 2000 to 2002, and you'll decide on the truthfulness of the testimony. I'm going to have to provide some translation because you'll see some pictures pertinent to the skin. Now, the legal definition of medical liability, which is malpractice, uh, turns on negligence and causation. Negligence is simply deviation from the standard of care, which is departure from accepted practice. And causation is that the departure actually resulted directly in injury to the patient. Those are the two ingredients, basically. Expert witnesses are hired by attorneys who represent plaintiffs and defendants. An expert witness is anyone who the judge deems to be competent to testify about the matters being adjudicated. A physician who serves as an expert witness is paid to testify, and those fees range considerably. Now, this was a trial in 2000 in the city across the river, and I'm going to ask you whether the testimony was truthful or not. Um, this was written about under the title, A Trial in Philadelphia and Matters That Transcended, and I was a defendant in this case, along with my associates in dermatopathology, then at Jefferson Medical College. I want you to know that I was very much engaged in this subject before this particular suit. I had written editorials about it, and so I did not come to this without considerable intellectual and spiritual investment of the subject. You're going to hear excerpts from the testimony at the trial from doctors DuPont Gary, Clark Lambert, and Thomas B. Fitzpatrick, all expert witnesses for the plaintiff. And this was the issue. Does invasion by, of blood vessels by cells of melanoma in sections of tissue that you look through a microscope at, and that houses also 
the primary malignant melanoma, in other words, the primary melanoma in the skin. And in the same section of tissue, you see vessel after vessel filled with neoplastic melanocytes of melanoma. Does that affect prognosis? Because that's the issue, basically, in this case. This is a bisected specimen of skin. The top is epidermis. The bottom is just above the subcutaneous fat. And this is a lesion of skin. This specimen was divided in half. One half showed only a nevus, and that's what I looked at and said it was a nevus. The other half showed a melanoma, and it was in a 38-year-old woman. And in the same section of tissue, you can see that there are spaces, and within the spaces, there are cells. And all those cells are cells of melanoma. And they were both in lymphatics and in blood vessels. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you see that, in almost every vessel, lymphatic and blood vessel, it's synonymous for practical purposes with metastatic disease. <clears throat> Dr. DuPont Gary IV, um, professor of medicine, director of the Pigmented Lesion Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania, testified as follows for the plaintiff, that the plaintiff had a 98% chance of cure in the context of this. And if you begin, he said, at the beginning with 100 patients like Lily, who was the name of the plaintiff, you would expect 98 of them would live forever. Now that's really uh, shocking because I think someone with a certain imagination could um, suggest that it would be worthwhile to have this in your skin if you could live forever. <clears throat> This is what Clark Lambert, professor of pathology and medicine, director of dermatopathology at New York, New York, New Jersey Medical School in Newark, had to say. And there you see another set of vessels from the same section of tissue filled with melanoma. The patient had a good chance for cure. And this is what Thomas B. Fitzpatrick, who was my chairman, my chairman of dermatology, I did my residencies at Columbia, Penn, and Harvard. When I was at Harvard, he was my chairman. And I was not the worst resident that they ever had at the Massachusetts General Hospital. My chairman comes in and says that this patient's prognosis was good, 85.6% eight-year survival. We're not going to go into the psychodynamics of this, but in the a lecture by Dr. Borg which I found um, riveting, he touched on some of the reasons, and Dr. Iacobello um, reinforced that by saying that there is a psychodynamic to this. This doesn't happen like Athena from the brow of Zeus. There are reasons that people do this, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. But it doesn't happen for no reason. Somebody has to be in pain for one reason or another, and that's a subject for another time. Suffice it to say, if you look at the publications of Dr. Gary before the trial in Philadelphia, this is 1989, you will see, and these always appear in very important journals, as we heard this morning, uh, the New England Journal, the JAMA, they have access to these. Um, it's quite remarkable that if you are part of a particular fraternity, 
you can get published in places where someone who is uh, a lone figure, a Dr. Stockman, an enemy of the people, really can't get access to. Suffice it to say, if you look at this article by Dr. Gary, the same person who said that the plaintiff had a 98% chance of cure and could live forever, if you look at what it says under vascular invasion, you can see that only 35% of the patients who had vascular invasion lived for eight years. So this certainly is not consonant with his testimony. And if you look in Fitzpatrick's textbook, Dermatology and Journal Medicine, before the trial in Philadelphia in 2000, it says vascular invasion, worse prognosis when present. And in the same um, book, vascular invasion, closely related to satellite metastasis, a strong predictor of nodal metastasis. Metastasis is metastasis. You can divide it into satellite, in transit, regional, and distant. But once you have metastatic disease, certainly of melanoma, it's widespread. It's an extremely bad prognosis, and that's what that really is saying. Now, how was the case adjudicated? We settled the case while the jury was deliberating because it was utterly clear that this was not a hopeful circumstance with somebody from the University of Pennsylvania telling a jury in Philadelphia, and it wasn't the most alert jury. I mean, some of the jurors' heads were, the chin was on the chest, and I don't know whether this was contemplation, but it certainly didn't look like that to me. In any event, a settlement was reached for $3.7 million, and had it not been reached because we spoke to the jury afterwards, they were contemplating a verdict of a $27 million award for damages. Now, we invited the three testifying physicians, um, Drs. Gary Lambert and Fitzpatrick, through the good offices of Betsy Peer, who was managing editor of um, a publishing company that I have in which we have a journal and we have a website called derm101.com. We invited them to respond to the accusation of prevarication. They refused to do that, but after one year, Dr. Lambert did offer an essay, which we published just as he wrote it. It was replete with sophistry, interspersed with chicanery. It was published, and I responded to it. This is the publication of Dr. Lambert. Subsequent to the trial, several publications have dealt directly with the issue fundamental to a trial in Philadelphia, namely the implication for prognosis of intravascular invasion by cells of melanoma. For example, in 2001 in the Archives of Dermatology, you can see it says in this article, vascular invasion is predictive of distant as well as regional metastasis, which you could also intuit, even if one were a layperson, one could. In short, There wasn't truthful testimony. Now, I hired attorneys uh, in Chicago. Russ Pelton is the chief attorney for the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons, and his associate is Michael Jabria. To make a long story extremely short, after bombarding the State Board of Medical Examiners in Pennsylvania, they agreed to have a consultant review the testimony of Dr. Gary, and they appointed 
a Dr. Conley, a medical oncologist from Lemoyne, Pennsylvania. In 10 months, Dr. Conley submitted his report to the state board. He said that Dr. Gary, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, had perjured himself repeatedly. Now, in the face of that report of Dr. Conley, the State Board of Medical Examiners of Pennsylvania did nothing. So nothing was done after they had requested the consultation when the consultant had made it very, very clear that there was perjury. Nothing was done. This is a cartoon. So, Professor Jenis Jenkins, my old nemesis, we meet again, but this time the advantage is mine. Ha, ha, ha. So what they can't do in the classroom, they often attempt to do in the courtroom. Now, this is a deposition at Kinko's in Norwood, Massachusetts. And as you can see, the issue is truthful testimony or not. This is a deposition of a Milton Oaken, a hired gun, expert witness for plaintiffs only, and also um, the experts for the defendants, and they were Michael Lee, Weston, and Wick. The issues here were, what procedure was used to take a biopsy, a particular biopsy, and was the pathologist negligent for not reporting on margins? Now, for those of you who are not terribly familiar with skin pathology, the surface is the epidermis, and the base, you can see, is beveled a little bit, and that's because the specimen was removed by a type of shave technique. And when the scalpel is brought against the base of a lesion like this, it's called saucerization procedure. It's a type of shave biopsy. You can excise lesions, you can use a punch, or you can shave them. This is clearly a shave biopsy, and you can see that there's a neoplasm there, and that neoplasm is screaming squamous cell carcinoma. Now, the question was posed to Dr. Oaken by the attorney for Dr. Lee, who was the defendant pathologist. You know, what was the diagnosis? And Dr. Oaken says the diagnosis was correct, squamous cell carcinoma. So we established that the diagnosis was correct. But he goes on to say, this is the plaintiff's expert, with a retrospectoscope, I know there was a shave biopsy, but Dr. Lee, looking at this section of tissue, with a prospectoscope, could not assume that. And the fact that he did assume it, that is an indication of his lack of competence below prevailing standards. Now, you could teach um, a kindergarten student to recognize that that was a shave biopsy. This is supposed to be an expert, he's board-certified dermatopathologist. He knew very well what this was. Do you agree from the slide you could tell whether it is a saucer-shaped incision or not. You cannot tell from the slides. That's my whole point. You agree, do you not, that there was no request for margins by Dr. Weston, the dermatologist who the procedure didn't ask for margins because he knew it was just sampling the top of the lesion. He wanted a diagnosis. To my knowledge, that's true, but that, that lack of request means nothing. Anyhow, who is acting beneath prevailing standards for about that's clear. The question is posed, I would like to know if you found any articles one way or the other and you know anything to support your opinion. 
that it is necessary to report margins on incisional or shave biopsies? That's the question. In standard practice, you never give margins for a so-called incisional biopsy, a shave biopsy, because it's expected that the neoplastic cells are going to go to the margins. It's not reported. It's not expected to be reported. Oaken says, you're asking me whether I found articles to support the view. Could you? I just don't understand it. I'm sorry. Did you? You're asking me whether I found articles to support the view that margin should be reported on incisional or shaved biopsies. Yes. Well, but the point is that the pathologist doesn't know what it is unless the clinician tells him. Well, the, and so therefore your question is in the realm of absurdity. After you've made your point, I would just like to, you to answer my question. I cannot answer an absurd question. How was the case adjudicated? Dr. Lee was dismissed. I was an expert for him. And the case was dismissed against him because there was no case. We ask the four deponent physicians to respond to a simple question. This is Lee, who is the defendant pathologist, Oaken, Weston, who is the dermatologist, and Wick, who is an expert for the defense. And... Um, they were invited to respond for publication to this question. And the question was, was your testimony truthful or not? As simple as that. Michael Lee says, I stand by my testimony. It is truthful. Dr. Weston says, I stand by my testimony. It's truthful. I, I, this is Dr. Wick. I did and I do stand by its being truthful. Now, Dr. Oaken responded through his attorney, and he writes to Ms. Peer, who is the editor of Dermatopathology Practical and Central, your letter uh, is in my hands. Uh, be advised that the essay you propose to publish constitutes actionable libel. If you, in fact, publish the essay, a lawsuit will be filed, etc., etc. Of course, we publish it immediately. Why would we not publish it? These were direct quotations from the transcripts. We didn't make up anything. We let it speak for itself. And this is the way Dr. Oaken and his attorney responded. Now, this is a trial in St. Louis County in 2002. Truthful testimony or not. Dr. Sober, an expert for the plaintiff, was vice chair of the Department of Dermatology at Harvard. The issues were two. Is there a difference between recurrence of melanoma in the sense that it persists at the site locally because it wasn't removed completely and therefore came back at that site, or was it recurrence in the form of a metastasis, a spread to a distant site? And two, is there a difference in prognosis for a melanoma that persists at a local site as opposed to a melanoma that metastasizes? And the sequence of events, very quickly, are as follows. In 1999, um, a family practitioner does, uh, sees a patient. She's 19 or 20 years old. Uh, he thinks it's a suspicious, suspicious, suspicious mole. Um, his preoperative diagnosis is a nevus. He does a shave biopsy. It's said to be a compound nevus by a pathologist. 
He shows it to his associate, another pathologist. Both are board certified. They both think it's a compound nevus. And 13 months later, the lesion comes back at the local site. And it's re-biopsied. And this time, it's said to be melanoma. And Mark Hurt, uh, a very fine dermatopathologist in St. Louis, says this is not a nevus, but a melanoma. And they measure it at approximately one millimeter in thickness. Now, in brief, melanoma prognosis is basically gauged on the thickness of the melanoma as measured by a micrometer that's put in an eyepiece of a microscope. This is a vast oversimplification, but the thinner the melanoma, the better the prognosis. The thicker the melanoma, the worse the prognosis. If it's about one millimeter, the prognosis is superb. So you have a young woman with a persistent primary melanoma, measured one millimeter, thin, favorable prognosis. Now this is what Dr. Sober testifies to at a deposition. And the question is put to him, um, is this a recurrence or a persistence? And it should have been, is this a metastasis or a persistence? But Sober acknowledges that this is persistence This is not a metastasis. That's the important thing. Is it fair to say that the two scenarios, metastasis versus persistence, are different? I'm not sure what you mean by medically different. But he goes on to say that local recurrence usually is in event with disease tracking towards the lymph nodes. So he moves from talking talking about persistence to now local recurrence moving toward the node. He goes on to say, that's correct to the question put by the attorney, whereas persistence would be the disease that is actually regrown at the primary site as opposed to metastasizing. And he says that's right. But he says, I believe she falls into patients with recurrent melanoma. So he deliberately confuses persistence with recurrence implying metastasis when he agreed that it was persistence of the local site. And he uses as his evidence Exhibit 24 from the Bush book by Balsh, of which Sober is co-editor, about prognosis of melanoma. So he says, take a look at this table. This is a graph in Balsh's book, and you can see that Sober is the fourth name there. And the graph on which Sober predicated a grim prognosis, because he said the patient had a terrible prognosis, maybe 20 to 30% cure in 10 years, a terrible prognosis. He predicated that on a graph that pertained to metastasis, not to persistence of the local site. So by using the word recurrence in these two different ways and knowing that they were different and then going to a graph that has to do with metastasis and not with persistence, he says the patient has a grim prognosis. And what we go now to the expert for the defense in regard to prognosis. What is your opinion as to survivability? 94% chance of survival at five years, which is clearly correct. And he shows the AJGC, AJCC Cancer Staging Manual, 94% survival for five years, as opposed to sober saying a 20% chance of survival in 10 years. 
The jury returned a verdict of not guilty. I was an expert on behalf of the defense. Now, letters are sent by Dr. Hurt, who was a close colleague of mine and a co-worker, and they went to Dr. Sober, and we asked Dr. Sober to justify what he had testified to. And, you know, we invite you to comment for publication. It will be published just as you've written it. Do let me know your decision. We'd like very much to have it, et cetera, et cetera. And there's no response. So being irrepressible as we are, we write again. And as you can probably guess, that some of this was um, ghost-authored. And so Dr. Hurt asks again, says that he's doing this in collaboration with me. Do let me know your decision. And we get a response, which is from the attorneys for Dr. Sober. And the attorneys say that we have violated HIPAA and therefore we should be very careful about what we publish. They say nothing about the accusations being incorrect. That's not addressed. Just the possibility that by mentioning the patient's name, and it was she who brought the suit, we would be in violation of HIPAA. We responded, and this was the response. This is to say that, you know, there was no response at first. Then they write again, and they say that they're following up on their correspondence. They haven't received a response. And Dr. Hurt responded as follows. Thank you for your letters. Now, the manuscript was published. There was no suit. There never is a suit. There never will be a suit. On what basis would there possibly be a suit when we're quoting directly from depositions and from testimony at trial. Now the last is the saddest of all, a trial in Morristown, New Jersey, truthful testimony or not. These are experts from, well, you've heard from them before. Dr. Clark Lambert is in the game again for the plaintiff. Dr. Frankel and a Dr. Burke, all experts for the plaintiff. These are the issues. Was a dermatologist who removed a melanoma in its entirety with a margin of about a centimeter, negligent, because the neoplasm was found later to have metastasized. In other words, you removed it completely. It then metastasized, it had metastasized obviously before it was removed because there was nothing left, never came back at the local site. Was that insufficient? Or was a dermatopathologist who acknowledged uncertainty about the diagnosis but who recommended conservative re-excision negligent because the neoplasm later was found to have metastasized? Well, you'll get a sense for this. That in 1996, a 40-year-old man presents to a dermatologist in Morristown, New Jersey. I know this young woman because she was a trainee of ours at New York University and she's a competent and serious person. She thought it was suspicious and melanoma had to be ruled out. She described the lesion properly. She performed a deep shave excision. The specimen was sent to a laboratory in Ohio for processing, and it was read out by a Dr. George Neat, who I also know is a competent dermatopathologist, who served as an independent contractor, and he dis- his diagnosis was a typical melanocytic proliferation, which is a description. It's not a diagnosis. The diagnosis is mole or melanoma. They're the diagnoses. So he obviously didn't know. He said the differential diagnosis includes melanoma, and he says it goes to the margins. So Dr. Cooper gets this report, 
And she sends it to Dr. David Elder, another colleague of mine who is at the University of Pennsylvania and a competent dermatopathologist. And he also gives it a descriptive diagnosis, atypical dermal and epidermal melanocytic proliferation extending to Mars. And he thinks it's a nevus. But he says in his report that the diagnosis is difficult and he recommended, quote, a conservative re-excision, end quote. So they acknowledge, the pathologists acknowledge that melanoma is included in the differential diagnosis and it should be removed. That's a given. The second surgical procedure was performed by Dr. Cooper. She does an elliptical incision excision, and the margins are clear. Scar consistent with previous procedure. There was no residuum, and there was no persistence of the lesion at the local site. It means it was removed completely. If a metastasis appears in the future, it means the metastasis must have occurred before the procedure because there was nothing left to metastasize. The melanoma was out. In 1998, a metastasis is detected in a lymph node. No evidence then of persistence of the primary melanoma on the back. The family of the patient alleging negligence on the part of Dr. Cooper and the dermatopathologists, neat and elder, file suit. <clears throat> and this is what the experts for the plaintiffs have to say. This is Ellen Frankel, dermatologist in Connecticut. Can you say within a reasonable degree of medical probability that any of the deviations by Dr. Cooper that you have enumerated had an adverse impact on this man's survival? Yes, sir. I believe that not doing a total physical examination, not having palpated for regional lymph nodes, did impact this man's survival. Can you imagine that the dermatologist did what she had to do? She made a tentative diagnosis of suspicions for melanoma. She gets a consultation. She excises the lesion. A node appears. Even if the node had been there, it was a sign of metastatic disease. It was too late to do anything. You can take out the node, but the melanoma's gone past the node. And in the pathology report of Dr. Neat, which was done on the re-excision, can we agree that there was no residual melanoma, that the tissue was clean? Clear. Yes, sir. So the melanoma was out. Doctor, you said statistically this can spread after the excision. It can spread after it's out? Yes. Well, it can spread if the entire tumor was taken out, can it? But you don't know that. You may have left one cell behind, that, etc. And this is an old gambit. It's all confabulation. It's all mysticism. It has no basis in fact. It's very much like the story we heard this morning about breast carcinoma. This is all made up. All the cases that you've reviewed so far in malpractice are on behalf of the plaintiff. Yes, sir. Are you board certified? No. Have you ever sat for the boards in dermatology? No. Why not? I had a miscarriage a month before the boards were given. She had many years to take it again. Never did it. This is the kind of character that appears in courtrooms and testifies under oath. Dr. Lambert, we've heard from him before. Maybe he is a different Lambert. Maybe he's had an epiphany. 
Dr. Neat and Dr. Elder deviated from accepted man, standard, medical standards by not specifying two centimeter margins for excision. They just said remove it. One said remove it conservatively. Now, Lambert is testifying that because they didn't say two centimeters, they're negligent. And you have read those slides also, have you not? That's right. And you read them the same way as the two others? That's right. So the Dr. Cooper achieved clear, clear margins, clean margins. That's correct. Is a conservative re-excision, as Dr. Elder indicated in his report, appropriate for a diagnosis of melanoma? No, it is not. This is just malarkey at best and pure distilled lie at worst. Dr. Burke, who's a medical oncologist, the question is, no, I'm talking about the re-excision. There, was, there were no cancer cells left, right. And there were no cancer cells anywhere, right. I think you indicate there wasn't any evidence of recurrence here. Is that right? What I said was there wasn't evidence of local recurrence. Well, that's all you care about. Did it come back at the local site? Because if it came back at the local site, it means that some melanoma was left behind. But there was no melanoma left behind. Nothing came back. And so he asked whether there is negligence, and his answer is yes. Dr. Neat was dismissed from the case. Elder settled for a hefty amount during the process of jury selection. He had done nothing wrong. I mean, but nothing. Because of the nature and the substance of questions coming to the court from the jury during its deliberations, the defense sought a settlement through a so-called high-low agreement. And the jury found Dr. Cooper negligent. This is the dermatologist who did nothing wrong. She took superb care of this patient. She could not have done better. There was nothing more to do. And the settlement was for $7 million. Invitation to the miscreants. We have to call them miscreants. We can't really call them colleagues because that would really be demeaning of what a colleague should be. And so here's Betsy Peer, poor Betsy. She went to Yale. Um, and Dupont Gary went to Yale. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been? I, as a Princetonian, exp- understand it completely. Suffice it to say, we write to all three of the uh, experts for the plaintiff, and we ask them to justify their testimony. And, of course, we hear only from Lambert, and he wants to know if this is the final version, what we've written. Um, When we present the true final version, he'll then consider an appropriate response, and we tell him, what you received is what we're publishing. So we get a letter from his attorney, and he writes, um, although I have not had the opportunity to carefully review the proposed manuscript, a very academic fellow, he hasn't had a time to review the manuscript that was enclosed, it appears that much of the material was taken out of context, there was nothing taken out of context, it was verbatim report of the deposition testimony and the trial testimony. One of the obvious purposes, say they, is to discredit Dr. Lambert. It was impossible to discredit Dr. Lambert. Dr. Lambert had already discredited himself. I have also been made aware of past publications for which you were responsible, of material which easily could be considered to be libelous toward Dr. Lambert. 
The article enclosed with the pure letter is obviously libelous, and it further appears that the basis for its publication is a malicious desire on your part to harm Dr. Lambert's reputation in the medical community. The jury verdict and settlement in the Cooper case affirmed the validity of Lambert's opinions. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? In addition to the above, it's clear that another goal of your publication is to deter physicians from acting as experts on behalf of medical negligence victims with legitimate claims against physicians. Yeah, I'm a very Machiavellian fellow. This letter is to advise you that if the article is published, suit will be instituted against you and your organization will be responsible for compensatory and punitive debt. I hope this will not be necessary. Well, at this juncture, I thought that my attorney should have a word with Mr. Bloom in Morristown, New Jersey. And um, he says that I provided him with the material. Dr. Ackerman assures me that um, the complete transcript of the definition will accompany the article. So I'm not only publishing the excerpts, I'm publishing the entire um, transcript of the deposition so that anybody has any question, they can see it. Let me speak plainly. I like that. Plain talk, direct, what I call the umbilical approach, right at the umbilicus. I can understand that nobody likes to be criticized, even in a manner academic, even in a manner academic. But the essence of a legal libel action is that a plaintiff must plead the alleged libel with specificity. Your letter, which expresses general unhappiness with the article, nowhere mentions which statements, quotations, you believe to be libelous. We have offered Dr. Lambert the opportunity, as we always do, to respond directly to anything in the article with which he disagrees. Under the circumstance, I believe it appropriate fully to ask you for an itemization of the material alleged to be defamatory, et cetera. We get a a, a telephone call from Bloom to Schneider, and then Schneider writes to Bloom and says, thanks for your telephone call. Um, You know, we are doing... um, uh, we're waiting a response, basically. Um, to be clear, you have advised me that you had not fully read the manuscript and would not be responding to my request for a single example of language that specifically libels Dr. Lambert. And so Bloom writes back and says, I'm in receipt of your letter. I've read the alleged There is no question that it's libelous. If it is published in any fashion, appropriate action will be taken, etc." If the manuscript is published, the consequences will be borne by Dr. Ackerman and any other persons involved with the publication. Of course, we published it. And of course, there was no suit. Now, what's the effect on a professional reputation of dishonest medical expert testimony, as you just heard? And I'm just going to show you the effect on Dr. Cooper. This is the Star Ledger in New Jersey. These are the top malpractice payments They got information wrong. She's the fifth highest um, award. She's the the physician against whom the fourth highest award in the history of the state of New Jersey was um, rendered. And it's only for $3 million. It was actually $7 million. They didn't know that. She would have been first by far. It's in the newspaper. Her patients call her. Here is an outstanding physician. This is a person who cares about patients. This is a person who's competent. And this is what she's subjected to. It's reminiscent of Kafka. Who is 
bearing responsibility for preventing this kind of damage happening to colleagues? Where are the marshals in our profession? Although the American Academy of Dermatology has a policy in regard to proper testimony by members of it as an expert witness, it does nothing to enforce that policy. And I know, because I was chairman of the committee that established the policy on behalf of expert witnesses, this very one. And when we presented it to the board of directors, we told them there must be punishment. You just can't have words. There has to be something to bring people like Lambert to heal. They wouldn't hear of it. And so these are just uh, an exercise in futility. State boards of medical examiners throughout the United States do nothing, I emphasize nothing whatsoever, to penalize medical expert witnesses who testify dishonestly, and flagrantly at that. Now, here's a survey that we did of the state board of medical examiners throughout the country. Do you consider medical expert testimony the practice of medicine? Now, that's a straightforward question. Yes, on the part of 12 states. 26 states say no, and two hadn't taken a, a position, three answered equivocally. What does this mean? What's the implication of this? If you charge a colleague with lying in a medical malpractice situation, the State Board of Medical Examiners will do nothing because they say it's not the practice of medicine. Well, what is it the practice of? Is it the practice of law? in some of my correspondence with the state of Massachusetts is one of the worst offenders. I said, certainly not the practice of witchcraft. That went out in Massachusetts several hundred years ago. This is a disgrace. We conducted an assault on the State Board of Medical Examiners of Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Jersey. We continue to do it. And if should you be interested in learning more about the cowardice and dishonesty intellectual of those boards, all you have to do is visit the website of Dermatopathology Practical Conceptual or truthfultestimony.org. This is truthfultestimony.org. It's our website. As I listened to Dr. Borg's splendid presentation, I thought to myself, am I a medical assassin? And it didn't take me long to decide I was a medical sharpshooter. How do I know what my record is? I mean, you have to have criteria, you have to have standards. Well, Lambert's out of the game. He doesn't testify anymore. Gary hasn't testified since. Fitzpatrick is dead, I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> the others, Oaken is gone. He's left the American Academy because they were hot on his heels because of me by sending them all this material about Oaken. They told him they were going to investigate him, and he resigned. So the sharpshooter, I think, is a better term than assassin. But I've gotten my men. They're out of the game. They can't do this anymore. The raison d'etre of truthful testimony is that we physicians and we alone can attempt to prevent lying by colleagues who serve as expert witnesses in matters medical legal. Nothing will be done ever by the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Dermatology, the state boards of medical examiners to punish those who fall woefully below the standard for honesty to say nothing of decency. It is the responsibility of each of us to seek to prevent and to punish those physicians who lie outrageously, 
outrageously in depositions and in testimony given in court. We put the spotlight on the bastards, and we mean to keep it there. Assist us. Provide us with cases of prevarication flagrant. Do not wait until your ox is gored. Thanks. Thank you. 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 Thank you.